All right, new book of the Bible, huh? Now you're all experts on the book of Galatians. So I'd love to hear you recite it, starting in chapter 1, verse 1, if you, if you would. So Galatians, you know, with uh, Paul's uh, fervency to make sure we get the gospel correct, we don't get any false gospels going, and largely what he was concerned about is you uh, not walking in the freedom that you've gotten in Jesus Christ from the law, you're free from the law, and, um, and so now with the book of Ephesians, I've actually got... I kept looking for quotes of what have people said about this book, and I ended up with a page and a half of quotes, so be ready. This is going to be the introduction, but let's uh, start our study on Ephesians with a word of prayer. God, our Father, we come to you in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, Lord, our Savior, and Lord, we lift up this new book to you, uh, the new book that we're studying, uh, this book of Ephesians. And Lord, everything you intended the world to know through this letter, we pray that we would receive. You would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, a heart to understand, and that this book would have its perfect work in all of us, Lord. So um, just be here with us as, as our great request tonight, Lord, and, and uh, find hearts open to receive your word tonight. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, book of Ephesians. Paul's letter to the Ephesians is different compared to many other New Testament letters that he wrote. Like the book of Romans, Ephesians was not written so much to address problems in a particular church, more so it was written to explain some of the great themes and doctrines of Christianity. The elevated themes of Ephesians make it highly praised and prized by commentators. Ephesians has been called the queen of the epistles, the, quint, the quintessence of Paulinism, the divinest composition of man, and even the Waterloo of commentators. Some say that Ephesians reads like a commentary on the Pauline letters, and probably it has been termed, it has best been termed the crown of Paulinism. It sums up in large measure the leading themes of Pauline writings, but it does more than that. It carries the thought of the earlier letters forward to a new stage. Among the epistles bearing the name of St. Paul, there is none greater than this. This is from a theologian named Salmond. He says, Among the epistles bearing the name of St. Paul, there is none greater than this, nor any with a character more entirely its own. There is a a peculiar and sustained loftiness in its teaching, which has deeply impressed the greatest minds and has earned for it the title of the Epistle of the Ascension. The Epistle to the Ephesians is a complete body of divinity. In the first chapter, you have the doctrines of the gospel. In the next, you have the experience of the Christians. And before the Epistle is finished, you have the precepts of the Christian faith. Whosoever would see Christianity in one treatise, let him read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest the epistle to the Ephesians. That's Charles Spurgeon. If the letter to the Romans focuses more on God's work in the individual Christian, Ephesians includes the great themes of God's work in his church, the community of believers. Karl Marx wrote about a new man in a new society. But he saw man and society both in almost purely economic terms and offered only economic answers. In Paul's letter to the Ephesians, he also saw the new man and the new society, but he saw it all accomplished through the work of Christ. Ephesians has many similarities with Paul's letters to the Colossians. Since Paul wrote both of them from a Roman prison, his mind may have worked on the same themes which he wrote each letter. He wrote to the Colossians to meet a particular situation and danger in the church at Colossae. Then with his mind still working over the theme of the greatness and glory of Christ, but moving to consider the place of the church in the purpose of God, he wrote Ephesians, this time without the limitation of any polemical aims. 
In looking at the great majestic themes of Ephesians, it's important to remember that Paul wrote this letter while a prisoner. In 1 Corinthians 2, verses 9 and 10, Paul wrote, But as it is written, eye is not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed them to us through his Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yes, even the deep things of God. So Ephesians is the fulfillment of that. Ephesians reveals the things God has prepared for those who love him. Chapter 1. Paul says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus. Now that's verse 1. And we're going to have around 13 times in the next several verses, these words either in Christ or in Christ Jesus or in him being Christ Jesus. So it's going to be helpful to process all you're going to hear from this chapter through that lens of being in Christ, in him. Now we have some ancient manuscripts which have a blank where we read in Ephesus, to the saints who are in Ephesus. Literally, we have manuscripts that just say, to the saints who are in, and then it's blank, and then it says, and faithful in Christ, in Christ Jesus. So many think this letter was intended to be a circular letter to be distributed around a series of churches, and they were to fill in the name of their church when they got it, type of thing. But we do know that the intended initial audience is the Ephesian church. Handley Moole said this, There is little doubt this letter was intended for Ephesus. And Ephesus was an important city to Paul. Here was his well-known city. Here for the space of three complete years, a unique length of time to be stationary for Paul. Here he had lived and labored, not as the apostolic missionary only, but as the apostolic pastor to this church. Here he had taken the critical and momentous step, the separation of the disciples from the synagogue to a distinct place of teaching and no doubt of worship, <coughs> which was known in Ephesus as the school of Tyrannus. It was a lecture hall, and we suppose a lecture hall of a friendly professor in what we may call the Ephesian University. Here Paul had labored, watched, and wept for both this community and the individuals within. But at the same time, we can gather that the letter was also intended in a more general sense, to circulate among Christians as a great statement of God's eternal plan, worked out in and through the church and in individual Christian lives. If there is a blank space in the manuscript where others read in Ephesus, it is certainly because we're to put our city in that blank. Okay, So this would be the letter to... I don't know if we consider ourselves Coconut Creek or Parkland or where we are or what we're called, but it's to us. It's our city we put in that blank now. Paul will use the phrase, in Christ Jesus, 27 times in six chapters. So we must keep this theme in mind. He starts by saying this letter is to the saints who are in Ephesus and they are faithful in Christ Jesus. Verse 2, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, 12 times in this, you're going to hear the word grace. Okay? It's a grace-filled letter. So grace being good things that come your way without any merit on your behalf for earning or deserving them, right? That's grace. Okay? Opposed to mercy, which is not getting the bad things that you're supposed to get right? That's mercy on you. But when you do get good things that you haven't earned or deserved, that's grace, right? And both are available to the Christian, right? We get grace and mercy. We get heaven. We get that good thing that we haven't earned or deserved. That's grace. And we don't get hell, the thing we have earned and deserved. That's his mercy, okay? So very often Paul will say, grace and mercy to you. Here he says grace and peace. Now, peace 
is this word erene in Greek, which in the Hebrew, uh, is from the Hebrew, it comes from the Hebrew word shalom. Shalom is the Hebrew version of this word erene. And the idea of shalom, as you've probably heard, is not just a lack of conflict in your life, that type of peace, but it's the abundance of things that bring you comfort and um, security. So it's both a positive aspect and a lack of the negative aspect. And Paul here wishes both grace and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 3. Now, in the original Greek, if you look at your Bible, verses 3 through 14, okay, you ready for this? In the Greek, that's one sentence. That's one sentence, okay? So, I'm going to try to get this out in one breath like Paul probably was intending, right? Okay? This is one sentence. Now, there was no punctuation in Greek. This was just an ongoing series of characters that had no divisive mark to, to set apart from verse 13. And you could see even the translators take a long time to find a good spot for a period in this. In this. But we're going to take it slow and careful here. So these verses 3 through 14 have been called, this one long sentence has been called <clears throat> an overture to the tremendous symphony that is the book of Ephesians that will follow. This is the overture to the tremendous symphony that will follow. All right, let's get into it. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, where? In Christ. It's going to be a common, common theme, and, and uh, I'll unpack that a little in just a moment. Okay? So it's in Christ. Just as he chose us in him, there it is again, right? This one's in him. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Now, because this is one long sentence, I'm just going to stop wherever I feel like it. All right? So, now, I'm not going to fully unpack this because we would literally stop here and go till 8 o'clock if, if we wanted to, but I will refer you, if you want to look at what I'm saying further, we recently completed a doctrinal class. Remember we did the, the doctrinal series on Christian doctrine? Okay. So the very last video on that doctrine series is the entire, that entire teaching is devoted to the, the idea I'm about to bring up here. So if you want to hear more of it, that's uh, where you can find it. Because this says, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Now that brings up what doctrine? Predestination. Okay? So <clears throat> this has been a major, major theme in my heart over the past six months or so. Because, you know... Um, I started my Protestant life out of the Catholic Church at a Presbyterian church, and my entire theological training has been at Knox Seminary, which is very Reformed, and I went many, 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 many years uh, being taught by professors who are very much Calvinistic. And so, you know, when you learn from those guys, you just listen to them and go, okay, I get it, you know, and with the lenses that I had on in viewing these scriptures, I got it. I got the five points of Calvinism. I get this whole issue of predestination and so forth. But then over the past couple of years, my lenses have changed and I see differently. And it was, let me tell you something, it's a wrestle and it was a struggle, okay, because you don't like to discover that, wait a minute, maybe I was wrong, and, and, and I'm not trying to be controversial and say one's wrong, one's right, except for one is wrong and one probably is right, but certainly one's wrong because they can't both be right, right? So, but as I wrestled through it, I started going, wait a minute, that actually says that, not what I thought it said. Now, if that says that, not what I thought it said, then that means the way that's describing that, now that's different, and it just kept adding up and adding up. Now, I have a beautiful advantage in studying theology and then I work in a, a Bible department of about 14 people, right? And <clears throat> so I bring up this stuff to them because I've got 
Presbyterian pastors, Baptist pastors, non-denominational pastors. I've got all these people, and they work for me, so they have to talk to me about it if I bring it up. So it's kind of cool, right? So I, I, swear, I swear to you, today one of them said, uh, can we talk about something else besides predestination? Today? He really said that today. But, and this guy is, loves talking theology, he, and he has a million questions about other areas. So he's just like, can we move on from that, please? So we're actually going to talk about the purification codes in Leviticus to show how exciting of a guy we are, right? You, know, hey, you party, party with us, all right? To see what it's like, okay? <laughs> that sounded so lame, but that's what we're doing. We're going to talk about the purification. And if you're not careful, I'm going to do Leviticus next, so be ready. All right? That'll empty this place out in a heartbeat. <laughs> yeah. All right. <laughs> All right. So anyways. <laughs> now. Okay. So just as he chose us. He chose us. That's, that's part of the revelation of God. He chose us. Now. This is just as he chose us in him. Right? So now. The categories that I want to present to you. Because you have lenses to see this through right now. And you understand it a certain way based on the lenses you're lo looking through. Of course you do. Okay? So I just want to introduce these two lenses. And then you filter through those lenses and you decide if these verses are fitting that or not. Fair enough? Okay? Now, this says, just as he chose us in him. Now, if we just read just as he chose us... You can't go anywhere else but, okay, so we've been chosen, and I didn't do anything he chose, and that's that. But Paul is always going to follow with in him or in Christ. And as you put this with Romans, and Ephesians 1 and Romans 9 through 11 are very much the places to go to try to unpack uh, Calvinism or, or Calvinism or no Calvinism. I don't want to name the other things because Arminianism has a, like a bad name out there, at least in my circles, it has a bad name. And I believe more something called Molinism, which everybody goes, what? Where'd you make that one up at? So it's not very well known at all. But I should probably do an entire thing on Molinism, to be honest with you. But, but anyways, <laughs> right after Leviticus. <laughs> For, and you're only invited if you go through the Leviticus series. So then you can sit in on the Molinism teachings. All right, now, <laughs> that'll, be good. that'll be good. All right, now, so if this idea of he chose us in him, this other idea is this, this other lens is this, that when we talk about election, it's actually presenting that the elect one is Christ. God chose him, okay? Now, as Christ is the chosen one, as he's the elect, now it becomes who's going to be in him. So all the promises are going to Christ as the son of God and the inheritor of all things. Now, if you want to participate in that inheritance, you have to be in Christ. So how do you get in Christ? The great majority of the text throughout the New Testament is going to say you have to believe. Okay, you've got to believe to be in Christ, and then you participate in all the benefits of Christ. And in Romans, it's going to say, here's where the Jews had the advantages. They had the covenants, right? They had the law. These are advantages of why they should have been in good relationship with God. And Paul's saying, it grieves me that they're not in good relationship with, Paul, with God because I would, I, he literally says, I would trade places in damnation with them if I could. It's grieving me that I can't. And see, it's verses like that that got my antenna up about being a Calvinist because I went, that sounds like Paul loves the Jews more than God does, because he would die for them, and Calvinism says God didn't die for them, right? So it's just stuff like that that I started going, how do I make sense of that? Did that make sense? That, that, just the question makes sense, right? Paul says, I would take their place in hell if I could. That sounds like the love of Christ. So doesn't Christ love them? Wouldn't Christ offer his salvation to them? Seems to me he would, okay? So... If Christ is the elect one and all the promises, remember, all the promises of God are yes and amen in him. So the qualification for receiving the benefits of your salvation are, are you found in Christ? Okay, so do you confess with your lips that he is Lord? Do you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead? It says, then you shall be saved, not then you have been saved. It says, if you meet this, you shall be saved, not have been saved. That, that to me is pretty big too. 
So my lenses started changing a little bit, and here's why I bug everybody about this now. Because <clears throat> studying guys like William Lane Craig to get a philosophical view of God, I got this definition of God that I'm really holding on to, and it's simply this. God is the greatest conceivable being, right? He's the greatest conceivable being. You can't conceive of a being greater than God, right? Because if you can, that means you weren't conceiving of God the first time. You were conceiving of something less than God. Now you're more accurate about God because you just got a greater thought about God, right? He's the greatest conceivable being, perfect in all of his positive attributes, right? Greatest conceivable being. Now to me, now this really might just be my opinion, but to me, it's not the greatest conceivable being who can die for everybody but doesn't. He says, I only died for the elect in Calvinism, right? I only died for the elect. Well, it just seems natural to me that something better could be done. Like if I heard of a God on another planet that did die for everybody and not preach Jesus, I'd go, well, that's a better one. Now, do you realize if I'm wrong about Calvinism right now, how awful it is what I'm saying? It's awful if, if I'm wrong. And that's why I'm trying to be very humble about it. And I'm just trying to use this lens, a proper lens to see this through. But to me, it's far greater if when it says God so loved the world, it didn't mean a minority of the people that live in the world. It meant everybody, right? It meant absolutely everybody. When it says God desires nobody to perish but all to come to eternal life, it means he desires nobody to perish. And he desires all to come to eternal life. Now, you really got to manipulate that to, to not have it mean what it seems like it means, right? So, for God to be the greatest conceivable being today in my heart, it can't be a limited atonement. It just can't be of Calvinism. It can't be the L of Tulip. It's got to be, when it says he died for the world, it means it. It means it without having to do any acrobatics with it. So, now, I can preach, right? Now, in Calvinism, I'd have a real tough time preaching to say God loves the world, knowing that if you're not saved and you won't be saved, that he didn't love you, right? When Jesus Christ said, love your enemies even, well, God, what about you? Love your enemies, right? Okay, now listen. If Calvinism's right, I'm speaking horribly now, and, and I'm, I'm always telling God, Either shut my mouth or forgive me, whatever you got to do, but I just want to know the truth, right? I just want to know it, and I can handle the truth. <laughs> I don't care what, who's right. I just want to know which one's right, and whichever one's right, then I'm going to say it, and because I'm really thinking this one, there's something to this one, I stopped where I stopped, and I said what I said, all right? Q&A is going to be fascinating today, <laughs> right? Okay. All right. They're already typing, aren't you guys, online? Yes. All right. All right. <laughs> Why do I do this to myself? All right. <clears throat> All right. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. So my idea here, which is not my idea, it's the idea I'm embracing right now is before the foundation of the world, God chose that mankind would be saved in Christ, through Christ. The plan of salvation is predetermined. It's going to be through Christ and no other way. That's why Paul will say, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteous. He says it's going to have to be believing. It's not going to be works or anything like that. It's going to be believing. Now the question to be, do, when you say I believe, was it truly you who believed or was that belief putting you and now you're just kind of parroting the fact that you believe? That would be the next question. And I know I sound very biased and I don't mean to, but it just keeps coming out that way. I'm sorry. All right, now. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame. Here's the other part of this. This isn't talking about salvation. It says you've been chosen to be holy and without blame before him. That's sanctification. Just like in Romans 8 when it says you have been predestined, doesn't say to be saved. It says you've been predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Those are both sanctification verses, not salvation verses. Okay? I'm just thinking out loud. Now, and here's the word, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself. So you're going to see Old Testament language that God adopted the Old Testament Jews to be his sons. Paul will say in Romans, to them was the adoption. 
They had the adoption as one of their advantages. So adoption doesn't necessarily mean you're saved because the ones he adopted in the Old Testament perished in the wilderness, unsaved, right? So when we automatically assume these words mean saved and unsaved, we have to remember God's chosen people, God's elect people, the Jews of the Old Testament perished in the wilderness without salvation, right? Except for Caleb and Joshua, okay? So we have to realize these words don't automatically trigger an eternal destiny the way I'm seeing it right now, okay? Wow, you should see your faces, okay? I didn't know your eyes could get that wide. All right, now, <laughs> according to the good pleasure of his will, uncontroversial, God's very happy with how he did it, and we should be too if we could ever figure it out. To the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us accepted in the beloved. All right, now. In your notes, for these verses I wrote, chose us in him to be holy and blameless. In the Calvinism, Arminianism, Molitism debate, we must not say too much more than what the text says, right? We've got to stick with what the text says. Here, our chosenness is towards Holiness and blamelessness, not salvation. This is not to say any case is closed, but it is an effort not to overstep what we learn from Scripture. Some here emphasize individual, the individual nature of predestination. Every time predestination comes up, the one camp will say, it's saying you individuals are either predestined or you're not. I tend to think he's talking about this corporate idea of, of election. Okay, Jew-Gentile. Okay, and that's what I see in, in Romans as well. Now, I'm actually saying more than I intended, and I can't help myself. But anyways. All right, anyways. Um, <clears throat> in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Is that where I'm at? Oh, no, I'm doing my notes. Hold on. Four through six. So, some here emphasize the individual nature of predestination, others the corporate nature of predestination. The important aspects of these three verses to know are this. <laughs> we, one, we are journeying in faith towards being holy and blameless. That we can get from the text without controversy. Two, we have been adopted as sons and daughters of God, as God, sons and daughters of God by Jesus Christ. Through the work of Christ, we're adopted as sons and daughters to him. Three, it was God's good pleasure to do so. Four, it's to his praise of the glory of his grace. And five, we are accepted because of Jesus Christ. Okay, that we can get out of the text without dividing. The other stuff I said is very, very divisive for sure. Okay. All right, verse seven. <clears throat> what are the first two words? In him. Okay, that Paul wants you to know that all this is in him, in Christ, right? All right, so in him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound towards us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will. <coughs> and that, when you unpack this word mystery throughout the New Testament, it's the idea that Gentiles are actually going to be the people of God. That's the mystery that's being revealed in Paul's day. The mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself. There's another in him there. He purposed it in himself. That in the dispensation of the fullness of the times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. What's the next two words? In him. Okay, back to back in hymns, right? In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Okay, now, in him also we have obtained an inheritance. Now, who's the we? Okay, is he talking about certain individuals? We have done this, or is he talking about this Gentile group in the Ephesian church? Okay, because never do you have a whole group where what you say about their salvation is true of every single person in the group, right? If I even say in this group here, look, you're here on a Wednesday night for a Bible study, clearly you're all saved. Believe it or not, there's a chance that some people think they're saved and they're not, right? How do we know I won't be apostate one day? 
How do you know you won't hear that I, you know, I'm up in the Indian mountains with Buddha or something, right? Okay, we don't know that yet, okay? Speaking of which, you know, my wife was kind enough to tell me I have the body of a god. And I was like, really? She said, yeah, Buddha. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, that never happened, by the way, but just thought of it. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> it's getting warm in here with this predestination talk. Let me tell you something. All right. Okay. Now, did I make it to verse 12 yet? All right. They might gather together in one all things of Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, in him. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So there's no question that predestination is true. It's right there in the Bible. The question is, how do you see predestination? It's either individual or it's corporate. Okay? It's even possible that sometimes he's speaking corporately and sometimes not. Okay? But, I, but even when you get into Romans about what Pharaoh's doing and all this, you still are not going to be bound to it being individual. But that's a whole other class, and i, I got to drop it at some point here. All right. That we who first trusted in Christ to be to the praise of his glory. All right, so as you know, the key phrase throughout here and throughout this whole letter is going to be the phrase, in him. So don't miss the trees of the blessings in these verses through the forest of this debate. Okay, look at all that's here for us, whether we were chosen before the foundation of the world as an individual, or if he predestined Gentiles to be the people of God now, and in this Gentile dispensation, we as individuals have come to him through our faith. Whichever way it is, we can't miss the fact that we have redemption. No matter which way you see it, you got redemption. Hallelujah, right? And it's through his blood. We owe it all to Christ that we have this redemption. What must we mean to him that it's his blood that's redeemed us? Because Peter will say in one of his letters, you have not been redeemed by silly things like silver and gold. You've been redeemed by the precious blood of Christ. It's a statement on your value. Gold and silver won't cut it to get you back. It requires more. What more could it possibly be than the blood of the Son of God? It's a statement of your value. This is what is meant by forgiveness. He bled so that all the sin that we accumulate, he can forgive. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Okay? But the blood of bulls and goats cannot forgive your sin. It took his blood to forgive your sins. That all of this is done by grace. None of us can say, I deserve this to happen to me. I deserve all this inheritance. This is all his, the grace of God. That's uncontroversial. Okay? This is by God's grace. That grace abounds towards us. Here we just read that the mystery is this revealing of God's plans for the Gentiles. That's why in similar language in Romans, Paul's going to quote Hosea. And he's going to say, what's being fulfilled through Christ is this. Where God said to his prophet Hosea in the Old Testament economy, he told them that there'll be a people, the people who are called my people will no longer be called my people. And the people that are not my people will be called sons of the living God. There's a switch of Gentile, Jewish to Gentile economy of God, right? Okay, so is that the, what was predestined? That corporately these, these roles will be switched, Right? Perhaps. Okay. It also says this is done according to God's good pleasure and that we are going to be given an inheritance. Okay. We're going to be given an inheritance. Verse 13. In him, <laughs> again, right? In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth. 
So when did the trusting come according to the Apostle Paul? After you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. So you heard the word of truth, you received salvation. Romans 10 says the same thing. How can they, um, how can they hear unless somebody preaches, right? And it'll say their faith came by hearing the word of God, right? It's not that the word of God came through their faith. The faith their faith came through hearing the word of God. They heard it and they were saved. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. What's the order of events there? Belief and then the sealing of the Holy Spirit. Okay? Because the big Protestant thing that I, not Protestant, the big Reformed saying that I got throughout seminary was this. Um, regeneration precedes faith. Okay, so you're regenerated and saved before faith comes. Okay, you're given faith after God regenerates you. Okay, it's just hard to find a verse that says that anywhere. It says it comes through faith. But the, the fear is, on the reform side, the fear is this. I hate saying that because I've always, always identified as reformed and I don't know what's going on. You're witnessing a transformation. You really are. I'm, I'm seeing things a little bit different. Now, they say regeneration precedes faith because if faith precedes regeneration or happens at the same time, which because it's God, I could see faith and regeneration happening same time. I believe and I'm saved at that very moment, right? Okay. But the worry for, that I used to have when I thought differently is that if faith precedes regeneration, then I did something for my salvation. I believed and that caused God to act upon me, right? And now that's a, that is not words you want to say in a reformed setting. Okay, they say you're, 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 now you're saved by your works and now you have a man-centered salvation rather than a God-centered salvation. But that doesn't sit well with me anymore. Okay, gosh, I feel like I'm in confession booth right now. Okay, now... I don't see faith in any stretch of anybody's imagination as being a work. It's not a work, okay? It's nothing to boast about. I'm not boasting that I believe and saying, look what I've done. Am I boasting about my salvation? I'm saying, look what he's done for me. I'm not taking any of the credit. I'm just saying I believe that he did it. That's all I'm saying. And I'd be a moron to walk away from what he did for me, right? I believe what he did, and I believe he did 100% of what it takes for me to be saved. I believe that. But I also believe that I believed it, and therefore I'm in him through that belief. And now I have access to the benefits of salvation that he accomplished for me 100%, and that my saying I believed, is there's no boasting there. I'm boasting in him. I'm pointing to him and look what this God did for anybody who believes. Can't say that the way I used to think. Can't say it's for anybody who believes. I'd have to say it this way. It's for anybody who happens to believe. If you happen to believe, then that means that God did it for you. And the proof that God did it for you is that you believe. Right? Okay? All right. I'm trying to move on, but you guys are intensely interested in this. I can see that. I'm just looking to see if you're about to throw something or not. All right. Now, look at the order of things here. You trusted after you heard the word of the truth of the gospel of your salvation. You believed, and then you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory? So now... The last of the five steps of Calvinism, perseverance of the saints, that supports that very well. Now, if we were studying Hebrews, there'd be verses that go, is it perseverance of the saints? Okay, so you got to be aware and be conscious of the lens that you're seeing through with, okay? Decisions are made before you enter into the text that are going to determine how you see the text. 
If you already think predestination is for the individual, you will see all of this that way. And, you'll, and, and, and those of you that are doing that think, I'm outside my mind right now. But if, he, if you don't, and you, and, and you see this, this corporate aspect, then, then you're reading that and you're going, of course. Okay? All right, anyways. It's like Romans 10 here. Romans 10, verses uh, 14 and 15, real quick. Romans 10, 14 and 15. How then shall they call on him whom they've not believed? You can't call it. It says you have to believe before you can call on him. Isn't that what that verse says? Okay. How can they call on him whom they have not believed? So you have to believe before you can call on him. How shall they believe in him of whom they've not heard? So now you have to hear before you believe. Okay, how shall they hear without a preacher? How shall they preach unless they're sent? So now, here's the work out. He's going to send so that they can preach, so that they can hear, so that they can believe, so that they can call on them. I'm not unpacking that for you. I just read it. That's all I did. It's what it says. Okay. Now, why do I think this is all corporate? Because if we read further in Romans 10, verse 19, it says, didn't Israel know this? Because Moses says, I will provoke you to jealousy by those who are not a nation. I'll move you to anger by a foolish nation. That's corporate. He's talking about nations are, are, are a part of this. When it says, Jacob I love and Esau I hated, it's that, that if you go back to Genesis, this is how that's, that whole discussion started. God said, there are two nations in your womb. So even Jacob and Esau, God says, these are nations I'm talking about. I'm talking about the Israelites and I'm talking about the Edomites here. And then when you get, then the very next thing it'll say in Roman, after Jacob I love Esau I hate it, it's going to say, no, after it says that the, uh, there are two twins in your room and the older will serve the younger, right? That means Esau, the older, will serve Jacob, the younger. Jacob has the preferential position here, okay? And then Romans will then quote this, because Esau I loved, uh, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. So people think that those verses go together in the Old Testament. And they go, how clear is this? Listen, two twins in the room, in the room, in the womb. There's twins in the womb. And before they do anything good or bad, that's not saying predestination to salvation. That's saying it's not based on works. They haven't done anything good or bad. So God's not evaluating the works to see who gets the privileged position. You're not saved by works is what that's teaching. Okay? But he says before they do anything good and bad, it was said the older shall serve the younger. Okay? So Paul quotes that in Romans to say this salvation we're talking about is not a salvation by works. This is by faith. Okay? And then he goes, and, and then he quotes this one, Jacob I love and Esau I hate it. So people naturally think because Paul put them together, they must be together in the Bible. But it's in Genesis where it says there's two twins in your womb and the older will serve the younger. And then it's in the very last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, where God then finally says, Jacob I love Esau I hate it. And by the word, that word hated there is the same words that's used elsewhere in the Bible to say less privileged position, not this despising thing, not this hatred thing, okay? So when did God say, Jacob, I love Esau, I hate it? After the whole Old Testament history of the Edomites being the enemies of his people. That's when he said it, not from the womb. He didn't hate them from the womb. He hated them after their history of being a thorn in the side of the Jews, so it's important to realize where these things are being quoted from because Paul expects you to know. He just blasts it out because he thinks his audience is going, oh, I get it, I get it, I get it. But fast forward 21 centuries and go on the other side of the planet Earth and we go, what's he talking about, right? All right, anyways. I'm actually unpacking this deeper and more than I did on the video I referred you to, believe it or not. All right, I got to finish here. Here we go. Um, I think I'm on verse 15. 
Okay. Oops, that's Romans. Let's go back to Ephesians. Verse 15. Therefore. Why is it there? What is it for? In other words, you've got to understand what was just written. You're like, yeah, okay. Before you can understand what's going to be written. All right? Therefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you making mention of you in my prayers. Paul here prays for their knowledge of God. Henry Alford wrote this. He prays for their knowledge. You gotta grow in your knowledge and understanding of God. Henry Alford wrote this. For philosophy to man, philosophy comes to man with the message, know thyself. The gospel meets him with the far more glorious and fruitful message of know thy God. Okay? So the push of philosophy is know thyself. The push of the gospel is know thy God. Paul here says, I'm praying for your knowledge of him. I want you to grow in your knowledge of him. I do not cease to give thanks to you for mentioning you my prayers. What's his prayer? That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. In the knowledge of him. Know thy God. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened. Interesting language. It says your understanding has eyes. And those eyes need to be enlightened. So you can see the truth. That you may know what is the hope of his calling. It's another interesting word in this whole debate is Calling. We hear Jesus say, many are called. Does that mean they're saved? No, because what follows many are called? Few are chosen, right? Okay. So we can't just take things and think, hey, if you're called and you're chosen and you're elect, that means you're saved. Because there's numerous examples of people that had those words attached to them that are not. So we've got we to gotta take in all of Scripture on these things. That you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Can you possibly imagine what are the riches of his glory? Paul, who got a glimpse of it, in Romans 8, will say this. The guy that was beaten five times with lashes, the guy that, that was stoned and left for dead one time, the guy that was beaten upside his head with rods three times, the guy that was in prison more than all the other apostles, that guy in Romans 8 says, I don't consider our present sufferings worthy of comparing to the glory that awaits us in Christ Jesus. He says, I have been beaten silly, so bad that they thought I was dead. And he says, that's not worth comparing to the glory that's coming. So the guy that knows suffering like none of us do, and the guy that knows glory like none of us do, reports to us that it's not worth comparing them. The glory is so far greater. When I think of that verse, I think of Elon Musk walking with him down a sidewalk, and we're just cruising down a sidewalk. He goes, wait, 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 I just saw something, hold on. And he bends down, and he comes back up, and he goes, I found a nickel. I'd be like, Elon, is that worth comparing to the billions of dollars that you have? Okay? That nickel, Paul says, is your suffering. Oh, but you don't know how much I'm suffering. Look how much Paul suffered, and he's the one that said it's not worth comparing. Okay? We've got to set our eyes on the glory. Set your mind on the glory. Think of things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. Okay? Then suddenly the things of this world become pretty small. That sounds like it would make a good song. That is a song. All right. All right. The eyes, of your, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, verse 19, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believes. El Shaddai, the almighty God. God. Paul says, I'm praying that your eyes will be open, that you may know what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe. How humbling. His great power is working for you. Now, you think that means all your hard times should be gone, right? Okay? 
Well, that's not how it was for Jesus Christ, Paul, Peter, James, John. All of them had harder lives than probably any of us will ever experience. And they were right there with Jesus. Right? Sometimes the closer to the fire you get, the more you're going to get a little burned, right? Okay? But it doesn't mean you want to go cold and get away from the fire. It's like C.S. Lewis said, just to feel, feel the lion's breath on you, you know, just to be so close to the lion of Judah that you could feel his breath upon you. It was one of his Aslan lines, you know, type of thing. Probably not. I probably mauled it, but the idea is there. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us to believe? According to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at, the, at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come, okay? You have the supreme power of the universe working on your side. So if God is for you, then... Now I want you to remember, you said that on a Wednesday night, and I want you to see how much you're complaining during the week now, okay? We forget. We forget about this relationship with El Shaddai, the Almighty God, don't we? And we start making little things huge things and complaining and, oh my gosh, and how come, and da-da-da. And I hate to say this, but in my observation of the human race and myself too, we enjoy criticizing others and saying how miserable they make us and all that. We actually feel good, and it's actually hard for us to stop. Okay? And I, I think I've said this before, I'm going to say it again. My big test for myself is in my car. I'm not the same person in my car that I'm everywhere else. I'm different. You try to get in front of me and see how different I can be. I realize it, though I recognize it. I'm working really hard. Every blinker I see, I'm backing up and letting them in. I'm trying. Okay, I'm trying to be patient. I'm trying to be gracious. I'm trying to be fruits of the Spirit. There's something about locking yourself into that car that you think, all sanctification's off limits here, right? Okay. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now, I don't know if you guys caught that, but it, it's naming Christ as his high and exalted, far above all principality, power, and might. And then it says this. You're that one's body. Can you imagine that? This one who's seated at God's right hand, and he's, all things are under his feet. He's the head over all things. And then it says he's to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This isn't the only time Paul had that idea. First Corinthians. First of all, I want you to see this. Paul wants them to grow in wisdom, right? That they can see these truths. He wants them to grow in wisdom so they can see these truths. One of my favorite areas of scriptures that hits my heart in a wonderful way, 1 Corinthians 2, I'm going to start in verse 10, even though it, it goes before that, but we'll start in verse 10. It says this, verse 11. It says, For what man knows the things of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? In other words, you don't know what's on my mind until you ask me, Right? You don't know what's on my mind. Only my spirit knows what's on my mind. If you want to know what's on my mind, you have to ask me, right? I'm the only one that knows. It says this now, even so, no one knows the things of God except the spirit of God. So only the spirit of God can know the mind of God. And now you go, well, then how are we going to know the mind of God? It's verse 12. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God. The one that knows what the mind of God is now is in us. So now we can know the mind of God. That's why there should be unity in the church. The only way to be disunity is either confusion over Scripture, but then that should somehow work itself out, or somebody's not operating by the Spirit of God. Okay? 
So he's given us that spirit who is from God that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. Okay? So your wisdom is highly affected by whether or not you have the spirit of God in you or not. That's why the church should look united on political issues. Because we're deciding based on the mind of God. How does God see these issues? Okay? And there largely is unity. It's usually us who the world's picking on about these issues, right? Because they don't have the mind of God. They don't have the spirit of God and can't know the mind of God. But then even within the church, you see sometimes there's disunity. I think largely the Christian body agrees with political issues in the same way, but not exclusively, okay? But the unity that Jesus prays we'll have in John 17 and that Paul's talking about by Christ being the head and we being the body, that body will function its best when there's unity in that body, correct? Okay? And so to have the Spirit of God, now we need to be humble enough to say, I don't want my flesh affecting these decisions. I want the Spirit of God that's in me affecting these decisions. Okay? And if we all submit to that, then I think you'll see even greater unity within the body. Greater unity within the body. Okay? And so he says, Jesus is the head and we're the body. And that's the language he says in the same book, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I'm sure you know it well. I'm just going to read three verses there, first 12, four verses, 12 through 14. 12, 12 says, For as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit, we are all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one spirit. For in fact, the body is not one member, but the body is many members. And then in verse 27, he'll say, now you are the body of Christ. Okay? That tremendous unity and how it's to function, he says, you are that body of Christ. Okay? That's why even the controversies that I brought up at the beginning should not divide we who are inheriting salvation, right? It's like, you see it that way, I see it this way, okay, you know, so now if I see it through your lens, and yeah, I'll see that. If you see it through mine, you'll probably see that. So the question then to me becomes this, which one represents the greatest conceivable being? Because we know that's who he is, right? So which way of understanding this stuff reveals the greatest God, because clearly the one that reveals the greater God is, is on track for being right. Now, what's your def- definition of a great God? <laughs> okay, because my Calvinist friends say this, why he's so great is because I would never have chosen him without him choosing me, so therefore I'm saved. But that's always one side, of, that's the shiny side of the coin. Flip that coin over and you look at somebody else and go, and God will never choose them. That's where I go, uh, right? So yes, if it's, if it's up to me or God for me to be saved, I'd rather him choose because I've changed my mind before. I'm not so worried about him doing that, right? Okay, but the question becomes, which one of those is the scriptures actually talking about? How do we understand Paul the way Paul wanted us to understand? Why does he break out into doc- doxology after talking about this predestination stuff, they'll say, oh, the wisdom and, 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 and uh, wisdom and knowledge and glory of God, how unsearchable are his ways, his ways are past finding out. And here we're going, I want to find this out. But Paul goes, you know what? The stuff that you do know is glorious. It's amazing. Okay, so whichever lens you see it through, remember, if you don't see it as glorious and amazing, then it's not the way Paul was trying to teach it to you correct? All right. I'm trying to delay so there's no time for Q&A, but I can't delay any longer. So here we go. Let's pray. Father God, in Jesus' name, Lord, forgive what needs to be forgiven and emphasize and, and, and reiterate what was true and good, Lord, and forgive any bad attitudes I might have had or even the questioners coming might have, um, Lord, and just let us uh, be vastly interested in what's true and pursue that with all our hearts, Lord, because 
Jesus, you are the truth. And we want to know you better every time we open our Bibles, every time we pray, every time we gather together in community, Lord, to, to honor you. We want to know you better, Lord, because we know the more we know, the more we're going to worship and celebrate you. So let that be so, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.